Hi, this is Dave Olson. I'm the senior leader of Heartland Church located in Ankeny, Iowa. I hope the following message challenges, encourages, and ultimately changes you. Thanks for joining us. We're going to get into the Word. And what I want to do this morning, we are going to start a series uh, we're, we're going to be we're going to start a fresh series on something that I've preached on many times over the years, and uh, something that I usually when I do preach on it I usually do it in January during a 21 day fast, but I, I'm going to do it this time of year because I just feel led of the Lord to do so. We're going to we're going to do a series on prayer, and I want us to take a deep dive into that. Now, before we get into that, I do want to piggyback on what John was saying about Will and De Havilland Ford tonight at 6 p.m. on on the Heartland Facebook page. It's going to be sponsored by the School Act, the uh, uh, Alliance for Cultural Transformation, and uh, the, the students are going to have some extra time when Will, with Will and De Havilland, but we're opening it up to the wider church and just public uh, from 6 to 7 with Will and De Havilland. How many of you remember, uh, were able to hear De Havilland when she was here before? Uh, I tell you what, that gal, I was prayed for by her, I don't know, it was back in, it was... What we, I guess it would have been 2000 and 2016. No, 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 no. It would have been before that. 2006 uh, in Chicago. I didn't know who she was. I just noticed everybody she laid hands on, uh, they got hammered by the Lord. And I thought, man, I'm going to get that girl's oily hands on my head. And so I did. And she prophesied over me. And I, I told her, I said, you ever make it to Iowa? And she said, well, no. I said, well, you need to come and preach at our church. And I uh, just kind of forgot about that. Well, then uh, here, you know, God's been pushing her to the forefront more and more. And uh, lo and behold, we had her, I think it was last year, sometime in the last year and a half. And her and Will were supposed to be here together. Uh, Will uh, and Will is a known prophet, travels the world, uh, is a professor at CFNI. And uh, we were going to have them together. We will be getting them here uh, in the future, but we wanted to make make them available to you. And so uh, I want to encourage you, log on tonight and listen to them. Uh, they bring a great message, a great word, and they're both very anointed, so you don't want to miss that. All right, we are going to get into the word. We're going to look at, we're going to do a, a series on prayer, uh, begin to look at prayer again, because I really feel like we're in a season where it's, it is crucial for us to partner with God. Uh, it's crucial for us to partner with him and his purposes. There's some things, some key things that God is wanting to do that's going to take our cooperation. It's going to take our partnership. The fact is God rules through man. God operates through people and it takes a cooperation. A lot of times people wring their hands and say, why isn't God doing something? When the fact is, it's because uh, scripture is very clear. He looks for an intercessor. He's looking for someone through whom he can move. And uh, it was the great John Wesley, the, the founder of the Methodist church and the great revivalist who said, God does everything by prayer and nothing without it. Do you believe that? That anything God does, he does through prayer. He's going to pro- provoke someone. He's going to lead someone to engage in prayer if he's going to accomplish something. And so God works through man. Uh, there is a doctrine, and we're going to hit this thing. Uh, there is a doctrine uh, called the sovereignty of God. That is a scriptural doctrine that is often uh, given an unscriptural definition. It's often assigned an unscriptural definition by well-meaning Christians. 
And it says that God is in control and that God is just going to do what God's going to do. And man is some, simply a cog in the wheel and God, God, things happen to man. And we're simply, uh, we're simply an audience that watches God work. And the fact is that scripture is very clear that we are participants and not merely an audience. God doesn't just act on us. He acts through us. And so God is looking for people to partner with him. And the sovereignty of God does not mean that God controls every detail of life. God is a, a leader who clearly delegates to man. Uh, God delegates authority. Matter of fact, uh, there are spiritual beings that God delegates authority to that are imperfect spiritual beings, and they, like us, will give an account for how we we utilize, how we steward the authority delegated to us. And so God will operate through beings, both spiritual beings and physical beings, both angelic, uh, fallen demonic beings were delegated authority, and also uh, man. And we will give an answer for how we uh, utilize that. So one of the components we're going to be looking at in this, we're going to really look at three or, or really four sections of theology uh, uh, let me just pause here. I, I, I read a, a document that Bob uh, Hazlett, Bob's one of our external overseers and a recognized prophet, wonderful man of God. Uh, I was looking at a document the other day he came out with at the beginning of this year. It was called 20 for 2020, 20 things that he felt like the Lord told him. And I'm thinking, man, I should have, I should have asked Bob in January if the Lord is tell, telling him anything. Because one of the things he said was that the economy is heading towards a Hebrews 12 shaking. It would have been good to know that in January. And he also said that it's going to be a time, there's going to be a great opportunity for cash out before a reset on the economy. That would have been a good thing to know in January. Anyway, one of the things he said uh, in regards to the church was that the church, it's going to be the year of the Bible and we're going into a season where God is going to, uh, churches that have been known for the gifts of the spirit will begin to really focus on solid theology. And man, that made my heart sing. We want to be people of the word and of the spirit. These are not mutually exclusive. The word and the spirit, they are one. They will never contradict one another. And so we want to be people of the spirit, but we also want to be people of the word. And so we're going to do a theological study on prayer. We're going to go into some good, strong theology. And so the first thing we're going to look at is we're going to look at a biblical cosmology. Now, some of this I've talked about before, some I haven't, but uh, it, it bears repeating because we have new people and they're just, I really feel this burden from the Lord that we're entering a season that he's looking for people to cooperate with them. And here's the catch. If we don't understand why we should pray, it's very hard to engage our heart in prayer. If we, we read the Bible and we say, oh, well, you know, God tells us when you pray that we should pray, uh, but we have a theology that tells us God's going to do what he's going to do without prayer anyway, then it's going to be really hard to ignite our heart and engage in prayer. We've got to understand why the essential role that you and I play. And if we don't understand the role we play, we are going to tend to not engage our, our heart in prayer. It's going to be hard on a heart level to justify spending valuable time in something that really doesn't make a difference. 
And if that's what you believe, it's going to be hard for you to do it just out of sheer obedience. Your hearts, you may do it out of obedience and just put in the time, but your heart's not going to be in it. And one of, the, one of the principles of prayer we will be looking at is James is very clear. The effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. If you're not praying with fervency, your prayers are not going to avail as much. Fervency in prayer is a key component to prayer. Half-hearted prayers are not going to avail much. Wholehearted, uh, a wholehearted pursuit. Uh, in Jeremiah, it says, you will seek me and you will find me when you seek for me with your whole heart. Half-hearted pursuit doesn't avail much. And one of the enemy's strategies to keep us locked in that half-hearted, apathetic mode when it comes to prayer is an ignorance, a lack of understanding in the key role that you and I play. God governs through man. Psalm chapter 8 is very, very clear. God has delegated the earth to man. What is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you would visit him? You made him a little lower than the Elohim and put everything under his feet. So God delegated the earth to us. And if we don't understand that, then it's hard for us to engage. So we're going to, the first thing we're going to look at in this theology, this study of prayer, is we're going to look at a biblical cosmology. Now that's just a 50 cent word for the way things work. The system that God set up. The, your cosmological view is the spiritual system that God created. And we need to understand that because you and I operate in a pre uh, pre-designed system, a system designed by God, and we have a role to play in that system. But if we don't understand our role and we don't understand the system, again, it's going to be hard to ignite our heart and really engage ourselves in prayer. So we're going to look at a biblical cosmology. The cosmology, your cosmological view of reality is the context in which prayer starts. It, or it takes place. So you can, if we were, if we were had a whiteboard up here, or uh, we were really high tech, we had a hologram that would just appear as I would point to it. Uh, it would, we'd have a box here, and the, your cosmology is the box in which prayer happens. The second thing we're going to look at is we're going to look at theology proper. We're going to look at God Himself. Your understanding of God has a controlling effect on your view of everything else. God is the ultimate reality. That's why uh, for, for centuries, theology was looked at as the queen of the sciences. Theology was the ultimate study, and then every other study would fall underneath that. And theology was the unifying uh, element in, in study. That's where we get the concept of a university. You had diverse studies, but the unifying factor, the unifying subject was theology. And our great universities from Princeton to Yale to Harvard were all created as theological seminaries in which theology was the queen of science, and that was the 
unifying study that tied all the diverse subjects together. Now what we have is a multiversity. And we actually have classes contradicting one another because we've taken out the unifying factor. And so you have people find, being told in ethics class and in philosophy class that you create your own truth and then they go to math, math class and flunk out of math class because they try to apply what they were told in philosophy and ethics class because they tried to create their own truth when it comes to mathematics. That's what I did. I flunked. And so I, I had my own interpretation of what math was. And so theology is the queen of sciences. And our theology, our view of God, our understanding of the nature of God and how God operates, and it's very intimately connected with your cosmology. The way you view God will determine how you view the universe. There's really two primary theological views of cosmology and our response to it, our posture when it comes to cosmology. The first one is, is there's, there is a, uh, let, let me put it this way, there's resignation or there's revolt. Resignation or there's revolt. Your view of the cosmological system, some people look at reality as something that God controls every detail of, and therefore our posture is simply to resign ourselves to our place in it and allow reality to work on us so that we'll become people of character. And there is an element of truth to that. But the other the other uh, theological view of cosmology is revolt that has the idea that this, the system God set up is fallen, that God delegated it to beings who then fell and it's been corrupted and our job is to revolt against that fall and overturn that fall through the king, an invasion of the kingdom of God, God's reign coming through us. You see, some people think that everything that happens is, is God's will. Everything that's happening around us has been dictated by God and therefore we must simply surrender to it and allow it to shape us. Other people look at er that much of what happens is the result of the fall and we are out to shape it through the authority of the kingdom of heaven. And the, the perspective that you adopt will have a very, uh, will mean a great deal to how you function in your Christian life. And it will, it will have a controlling effect on how much you engage in prayer. If you think that everything that is happening is already God's will, you're going to be hard-pressed to really get fired up to pray, God, thy kingdom come, because you're already convinced that it's happening without your prayers. And you have a faulty cosmology. And I'm telling you, this, this idea that everything that happens is God's will is a pervading philosophy in Christendom, much of Christendom today. And we need to come smack dab in the middle of that thing and confront that from the scriptures. Because it creates an apathy and a resignation and it may produce Christians of character, but they, they're not going to have power in ministry. You may, have, you may be a person of character because you're resigning yourself to what you believe is God's will. And God will honor that heart posture and you'll be a person of surrender and character. But you'll end up surrendering to things that were never God's will. 
And in reality, the enemy will use you to hide behind and you, you can end up inadvertently aiding and abetting the enemy in his processes in the world. And so we've got to have a biblical cosmology. So we're going to look at this. This is the box in which things happen. And then our view of God, the, the nature of God has, a, of course, a controlling effect on our cosmology and the rest. Then we're going to look at, we're going to look at a, a, a biblical anthropology. Because in the, the box of cosmology, the context in which prayer takes place, we are praying to God, right? Okay, so our theology, that's the one we're praying to. But our anthropology is the, stu- the biblical study of man. In our case, it's the biblical study of man. And we're the ones praying. We've got to understand man. We've got to understand a biblical study of man. Because if we don't understand that, we won't engage ourselves in the process. And then the final element of prayer that we're going to be looking at. So if we have our box here or our hologram. Here it is. It's a big box here. This is your cosmology. God is at the top of the box and even over the box because he's ruling over the cosmology. And then you are at the bottom of the box praying up to the top of the box. That, that the God of heaven will invade the box and then there is somebody in the middle of the box resisting your prayers and that is going to be our biblical demonology. We're going we're gonna to do a study. We're going to look at the spiritual realm and uh, we're going to add some things to this that we haven't looked at before. Uh, Bob Phillips, who was one of our pastors uh, for just over a year Wonderful man of God. Uh, I so wish I had him to ask some questions to. Uh, but uh, Bob, Bob told me once, and I think he said it to the church. He said, there's a unique call on Heartland to map out the spiritual realm, to understand the spiritual realm. And it was such a strange thing, but I knew he was right. God wants us, because of the unique call on this church and intercession and our, our role in the region and our governmental call, God has called us to have an understanding of the spiritual realm. And so we're going to begin to look, we're, we're going to gain an understanding of the spiritual realm and the opposition in prayer. And by what authority does the enemy oppose your prayers? The fact is, you could ask this question, who rules the universe? Is it God? Is it man? Is it the angels? Is it the demons? And the fact is, you could say all of the above in one sense, because they all are functioning so much so that God calls the, the devil in the New Testament, scriptures refer to the devil as the God of this world, the prince of the power of the earth. That's a ruling term, prince. The God of this world, the prince of the power of the air, the ruler of this dark age. What in the world is the deal with all that terminology? The enemy is exerting authority And we need to understand where this authority comes from and how to combat because there is a being that is resisting the answer to our prayers. Paul said, you wrestle not against flesh and blood. In other words, it's not the person sitting next to you that's your problem. 
Some of you aren't convinced of that, but it's not the person sitting next to you. It's not the person that gets under your skin. That's I see some of you bumping each other. It's not the person that gets under your skin. That's the problem. There is an unseen enemy. It's not that we don't wrestle. It's that we're not wrestling with flesh and blood. We wrestle with principalities and powers. There is a combat, there is a a breath-to-breath wrestling at times with these entities in order for the purposes of God to be realized in the earth. And if we don't understand that, if we don't have a framework, a grid work for that, then we will succumb, we will surrender when we have resistance. Often, people think that when there's resistance, oh, it must be God's will. And so this is what we're going to look at over the next number of weeks. Now, I want to just go backtrack a little bit because we've been talking over the last number of weeks about the blood. And uh, last week, we got into a subject uh, I wanted to deal with, uh, just the idea of what do we do with all these prophetic words out there uh, in in a time of crisis? How do we navigate the prophetic in a time of crisis? Uh, I am a firm continuist. The Bible, uh, all of the Bible is relevant for today. God is the same yesterday and today and forever. He didn't turn off the spigot of the supernatural at the closing of the canon of scripture. The very scripture that is written tells us, forbid not speaking in tongues, uh, despise not prophecy. Uh, it, it, gives, it tells us that the, the fivefold gifts, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers, uh, the, two, the, the two first of which apostles and prophets, are overtly, decidedly supernatural in their function. Uh, there's a reason there is a warfare against those two specific gifts. You can be an evangelist, a pastor, and a teacher, and not you can be very successful in those roles, biblically, by their definition, and not necessarily function overtly in the supernatural. But you cannot be apostolic or prophetic without functioning in the supernatural. You can be, the the prophetic demands a supernatural element to it. It's divine, there's there's revelation from heaven that comes through the prophetic. And Paul was very clear, he said to the Corinthians, the signs of an apostle have been wrought in your midst, signs, wonders, and miracles. So there's an overt supernatural element to apostolic ministry. And that's why both of those have been relegated often to the apostolic age. There is a a war against those two gifts because the enemy knows that those, uh, Paul says in Ephesians chapter two, that the church is built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 says, and in the church he gave first of all apostles, then prophets, then teachers, then uh, workers of miracles, then gifts of administration. The word there, first of all, literally means uh, the order of entrance. It's not talking about importance as in, uh, as if apostolic or prophetic ministry is more important than the other three office gifts. It's just saying that their entry is uh, more initial, more foundational. It's upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, as he says in Ephesians. Why? Because it's those two gifts who anchor the church in the supernatural. When you have the influence of those two gifts influencing a body of people, it it keeps it anchored in the supernatural. And it's crucial that we understand that. It's crucial that we guard the supernatural. 
But it's also crucial that we anchor supernatural activity and judge it against the plumb line of Scripture. So that we're not just open to anything willy-nilly. I'm not sure what that willy, word willy-nilly means, but you get what I'm saying. Uh, we're, we're not open to anything. We're anchoring it in the Word. And we need to understand that the crucial partnership between this thing we're going to be talking about, intercession, prayer, and the prophetic. Because much of the prophetic engages us in a process. The prophetic is often not an event. Let me say it again. You receive a word from somebody. You're part of a church that receives a word or God gives you, you know, you, you receive a prophetic word. That enters you into a process by which the prophetic is fulfilled. It is not an event. And it's firmly rooted in scripture. And so we need to understand how do we do that? How do we enter into that process by which God accomplishes his prophetic purposes? Ezekiel chapter 37. Let's turn there real quick here. Ezekiel chapter 37. Last week we were looking at this whole thing of the prophetic in a time of crisis. And I was talking about how the prophetic is not an inevitability. If you understand, if you begin to study the scriptures and, and see how God operated through the prophetic in the lives of his people in scripture, you begin to realize that the prophetic is not an inevitability. When God releases a prophetic word, there are those who are, there are, there are certain words of warning that if responded to can be averted and it can be a true word from God and we can avert those words. A scriptural example of that is the book of Jonah. Jonah was not a false prophet when he declared over Nineveh, this city will be destroyed in 40 days. The people repented and they averted that destruction. It wasn't that Jonah was a false prophet. It was that the purpose of that prophetic word was fulfilled by their response and they averted it. It was a true word and the purpose of it was that it wouldn't be fulfilled. Now, had they not been, been uh, have they not repented, it would have been fulfilled. So we have some prophecies that are warnings that if responded to correctly can be averted. Then there's some prophecies that are invitations into blessing that must be cooperated with. And if we don't cooperate with them, we will not enjoy them. And so we need to understand that there's a process that the prophetic brings us into. It's God inviting us into his process. It's God inviting us into how he operates. So the, pro the prophetic is not... It's not just an event where God drops on you an insight into your future. It's a door of invitation where he says, if you'll partner with me, I want to give you a glimpse of your future. The vast majority of time, that's what the prophetic is. And therefore, when we understand that, we understand that prayer and prophecy go hand in hand because we begin to use the prophetic as the fuel of intercession and we partner with heaven to cry, thy kingdom come, like Jesus taught us to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. If God's will is always done, why would Jesus tell us to pray it? 
If it's going to happen without your prayer, why did Jesus engage your will in the process? Why would he teach us to pray thy kingdom come if it's already going to happen? It's not just so that we'll go through the motions because God loves hanging out with us. He has delegated to you authority and he's inviting your cooperation, your partnership into governing planet earth. It's what the kingdom of God is about. The kingdom of God is the king's dominion. The kingdom of God is not a realm. It's the reign of God. This this is a key thing for us to understand. We throw these terms around, but often we have a modern perspective that really, at best, uh, really reduces the impact of the kingdom and often gives us a a total uh, misunderstanding of what is meant by the term the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is literally the king's dominion or his right to rule. When we speak of the kingdom, it's not a place. It's God's right to exert his authority. It's not a realm, it's the rule of heaven. It's it's more much more evident in Spanish. It's reino. It's the reign of God. Matter of fact, there's two verses in scripture, one in the Old Testament, one in the New Testament, that really bring forth the ancient idea of what kingdom is. In, in Luke chapter 19, Jesus tells a parable. He said, There was a wealthy man who went off to receive for himself a kingdom. The more modern translations, because that's a literal translation, our more modern ones often translate it. There was a a wealthy individual who went off to receive uh, the the authority to rule. It, It brings the intent, but it loses the word and we don't connect the two. The kingdom of God is God's authority entering in and beginning the process of of eradicating the opposition of the enemy. That's why when the, you know, the kingdom of God is here, but it's coming and God's, the invasion of his kingdom comes through you. His rule comes through you and we partner with him. So his authority begins to push out the opposition. There's, uh, in, in the Old Testament, if you look in the book of Daniel, I, I want to say it's chapter 4. Uh, if you remember where Nebuchadnezzar, is, he has a dream. And in this dream, he sees a tree that's cut down and there's a stump left and it's a troubling dream. So he calls Daniel and he says, Daniel, uh, you know, he knows Daniel walks with God. He said, hey, what's this dream? And Daniel said, oh my, he gets this revelation. He's a prophet. And he says, oh, um, boy, boy, that this was true to someone else and not you, O king, because he's about ready to drop him. Uh, a bad word, a, a word that's a warning on Nebuchadnezzar. He said, you are the tree. God has chosen you. And it says that there's the birds of the air find their shelter in him. And God has chosen you. You rule over. Uh, he, was, he was a very powerful ruler. He said, but God's going to deal with you. And it wasn't for a year that, until it happened. It says a year later, Nebi is walking on his, his porch, he's on his balcony and looking over his big palace. And he said, oh, look all that I've created by my own hand. And an audible voice spoke out and said, 
you have been, you know, essentially you're in trouble, buddy. And literally these are the words. Listen to what it says. The kingdom has been taken from you. That's what he says. The kingdom has been taken from you. And all of a sudden he became insane for seven years in a moment's time. It was an event, boom, dropped on him. And all of a sudden he lost his mind. And for seven years, it said he, he was like an animal that ate grass. He was, he was like out in the field. His, his, his hair grew like eagle's feathers, whatever that means. I guess he feathered his hair, kind of 80s hairstyle, you know. He's out there and he's eating grass. His, his fingernails were long. And, and, uh, and then after the dew was in his, he was wet. And he's like an animal. He's just, and uh, it, it's a wonder they didn't just kill him. Because of how many people he had subjected under his rulership, but they, they guarded him as the king and he was out to pasture and someone else was ruling in his place. And all of a sudden, after seven years, his mind, he comes back in clarity of mind and he gives glory to God. And it's fascinating to me the way God stated, the audible voice says, the kingdom has been removed from you. It wasn't that all of a sudden somebody else conquered that land and it was no longer Babylon and it was a place that was eradicated. It was literally the right to rule over other people was lifted off him in a moment's time. It was the kingdom. The dominion that he carried as delegated by God was removed from him for a season. So you and I need to understand the kingdom of God is God's rule coming in. But we partner with it in order to see those things come to pass. Let me give you an example of a, a passage where there's an invitation to blessing uh, it, in, in, uh, where Jehoshaphat begins to ask the Lord if he should go after Moab and, and uh, he asks for a prophet and Elisha shows up and uh, Elisha gives him a word. And remember where this was the passage where Elisha said, bring me a harpist or a muse, a musician, because he, he wanted to get in some worship music so he could get in the zone to prophesy is really what was happening. It's an interesting passage. And so as the music start, Elisha gets the word of the Lord, which gives us precedence for there's something about worship that is conducive to the spirit of prophecy. And the word of the Lord comes to Elisha and he said, you're going to pursue Moab. You're going you're gonna to go in. You're going to remove. You're going to conquer every great city. You're going to wipe out all the, you know, every great city. You're going to shut it down. You're going to destroy every field with stones and so forth and uh, pursue the enemy. And so they do. And right to the end of the passage, they're just ready to finish the job. And that's that strange passage that I brought up recently where it says the king of Moab took 700 of his swordsmen and tried to break through the lines of Israel and they couldn't. And so that's when he took his firstborn son that was meant to be his heir and killed him on the city wall as a sacrifice. And it said a great fury was released against Israel and Israel went home. Weird passage. And what it's saying is this, that they had a prophetic word of full victory and they saw most of it happen, but at the final 
the, the final phase of the fulfillment of that prophetic word, there, the enemy, the, the, there was an engagement of human cooperation with great darkness, human sacrifice, an occultic sacrifice, and which gave the enemy uh, an inroad and, and great fury was released against Israel because of this demonic, uh, th- this demonic, uh, sacrifice and Israel gave up and went home and they didn't see the full fulfillment of the prophetic word. Now, was that a false word? Was Elisha a false prophet? No. We know Elisha was a prophet of God. And we know that was a true word from God because of the supernatural fulfillment. If you read that passage, there were a number of things. Water came. There, there was. There, there's two different termin, uh, uh, interpretations of the passage. But one, they dug trenches. The other one, that there was a dry riverbed and it, water began to flow from Edom and, and filled it up uh, without rain. And, and that was prophesied by Elisha. And then they went and pursued the enemy. And it was an amazing thing. But in the final moments of the process of the fulfillment of their prophetic word, they failed to move into complete victory. Why? Because prophecy is a process that God invites us into and we're to contend with him. We're to cooperate with him. There is a part that you and I play. Prophecy, whether a warning of judgment or an invitation into blessing, is not necessarily. Matter of fact, it rarely is an inevitability. It's usually an invitation of heaven to engage God for either to avoid the impending, the warning, or to enter into the, the enjoyment of what he's offering. But if we don't understand this, we sit back and we think that prophecy is just this inevitability and it's, let, I want to get a word, I want to get a word, and then we just sit back. And then when it doesn't come to pass, we judge the word or the prophet as a false prophet when that may or may not be what really happened. It may have been that we failed to cooperate, failed to fulfill our role in the process. And so we need to understand this thing. Now, real quick, that was kind of the intro. Let's look at Ezekiel 37. Oh my. Hey, it's been a while since I preached to people, okay? Ezekiel 37. We'll be here till about two. Then we'll take a break and meet back at four. Now, Ezekiel 37, verse one. Look at what this says. This is an interesting passage. I tell you what. They're they're one of my, a guy that's become one of my favorite theologians, a guy named Michael Heiser. He, He has, his byline for his ministry is that he, no, he, he's, he's made a commitment to no longer protect people from the Bible. He said, I'm done protecting people from the Bible. And you got to understand, this guy is not a continuist. Although he, he, he leaves the door open for the supernatural. He's not a charismatic, he's, he's now on staff at a large charismatic church. The pastor of which had an encounter on last Easter, an open vision, and they launched a school out of that. But uh, this guy, he says, I'm, I'm not going to protect people from the Bible. 
And he spends a lot of his time on those strange passages. And I, I just really appreciate his scholarly mind being applied to these strange passages and giving some insight into them. And uh, I've never heard him speak on this passage, but this is a strange passage. The book of Ezekiel is a, I'm telling you what, if you think that God is not strange, you've never read the book of Ezekiel. This is a strange book. Listen to what it says in 37.1. The hand of the Lord was upon me and he brought me out by the spirit of the Lord and set me in the middle of a valley. It was full of bones. He led me back and forth among them and I saw a great many bones on the floor of the the valley, bones that were very dry. He asked me, son of man, can these bones live? And I said, Sovereign Lord, you alone know. That's the introduction to this strange prophetic encounter that Ezekiel enters into. Many of you are familiar with this passage. But one of the things we don't often think about when we read this passage and we look at what happened, we don't, we don't recognize that Ezekiel was, entered, was invited into a prophetic process. This was not an event. It was a process. There were multiple prophetic declarations that had to take place in order for all that God intended to happen with these dry bones to become the army he intended. And it demanded a cooperation with the voice of man. It it demanded a cooperation with Ezekiel's voice as God's delegated uh, authoritative individual in this situation. And it's a picture for you and I of how God operates. That God may give you, may, may drop you in the middle of the dry bones of some area of your life. The dry bones of your nation the dry bones of your family, some area of your life that's not only dead, it's baked, okay? It's not only dead, it's, it's, it's beyond, you know, remember the phrase that they said of Lazarus when Jesus was gonna raise him, he said, roll the stone away, and they said, but Lord, I love the King James, it stinketh. Things started to decompose. This is well beyond decomposition. I mean, the, bone, the, the meat is off the bones and it's dry bones. They've been there for a while. Anybody have an area of your life like that? And God wants to take you into the dry... Amy, it's good to hear you. I'm going to tell you. I've missed that stuff, man. You don't, you don't realize how much you feed off of that stuff until it's gone. <laughs> God will take you into the dry bones of some area of your life. And his full intention is that these bones would not only live, they would stand as an army to accomplish his purposes. But between the dry bones and the army, there is a process. It's not just a one word, hey, get up. There's a process that they're invited into. So listen to what he says. The first, I get a kick out of this. He says, he's, he's, uh, there's reason to believe that when he's going back and forth, because Ezekiel has had this encounter before. There's one passage where literally God picked him up by the hair. I don't know that I'd want that encounter. Picks him up by the hair and he's hanging there like a rag doll, you know, 
looking down and God, God's showing him things. He's hanging him by the hair. And so we don't know if that's what happened. He's, he's hanging by his hair again, looking over, you know, the, the valley of dry bones. And the Lord says, can these bones live? And Ezekiel gave a very wise answer. You know, Lord. Because it begs the question, is he's wondering where these bones come from. Was this the last prophet who got the wrong answer? You know, he's, he's just, so when God asks you a question and you don't know, the best answer is God, you know. You know, Lord. And so the Lord invites him into this process. Listen to what he does. Verse four, then he said to me, prophesy to these bones and say to them, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the sovereign Lord says to these bones. And it's, he, 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 he frames it as the word of the Lord. It's not just, hey, I'm going to give you some good advice. There are times where God will speak to you and you deliver that to somebody else's good advice. There is other times you need to deliver it. You need to say, I've got the word of the Lord for you because they need to understand what's coming forth. Okay, so he says, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the sovereign Lord says to these bones. I will make breath enter you and you will come to life. I will attach tendons to you and make flesh come upon you and cover you with skin. I will put breath in you and you will come to life. Then you will know that I am the Lord. So he's making this declaration of the end zone that God is going for. So verse 37, 7. So I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I was prophesying, there was a noise, a rattling sound. That must have been something. And the bones began to come together. The thigh bone came to the hip bone and bone. And that's where that song came from. Verse 8. I looked and tendons and flesh appeared on them and skin covered them and there was no breath in them. What an amazing thing. It's baked, scattered disconnected bones. And he begins to prophesy, hear the word of the Lord. And all of a sudden there's, there's rattling, there's movement and the bones begin to connect and tendons and skin comes over it and it, be, and, and it begins, flesh covers over the bones. There's movement and there's noise, but there's not yet life. There's a process to prayer there's a process to the prophetic. And often those two things are almost interchangeable. The prophetic process is God brings us into this, this process of prayer that we're praying with him. And what we've got to be careful of is that we're not like Jehoshaphat. And when the opposition comes, we settle for a false finish line. And we're, we're content with movement and noise, but no life. I'm telling you what, when you've been around dry bones, movement and noise is pretty exciting. Movement and noise is easy to settle for. It's easy to settle for this supernatural rattling and man, skins on it, and it's impressive. Man, I mean, that alone you can put in your newsletter. You put it on in your newsletter. Hey, I prophesied over these dry bones, and look at there's bodies out there. They're still dead, but there's bodies. And many of us, we settle for that first stage and we settle for less than God had it. Just like Jehoshaphat, and it's not because it was a false word and it's not because we didn't hear from God, it's that we settle for too little. 
And God wants to keep us in that process. There's a place to continue to declare the word of the Lord over what God has shown you is going to happen. And when there's no movement, you declare it again. And you pray again. And you stay in the pocket. And we declare the word of the Lord over the dry, dead places of our life. And just because there's noise and there's movement and there's some skin stretched over the bones, doesn't mean we stop prophesying. Don't settle for less than what God promised you. We need to stay in the fight. The prophetic and intercession, both. You can preach it both ways. The prophetic is a process. Intercession is a process. The prophetic is not an event where you stand in a service and somebody calls you out and gives you a word. That is the beginning of a process. It wasn't the the moment of an event. And we need to learn to engage. If it was a warning then you can cooperate with it and avoid the impending disaster that God was trying to warn you from. And if it was a promise of blessing, there's something that you need to cooperate with that you can contend with heaven on that you can have happen so that you can enter into that blessing. But it's not an inevitability. Well, God told me, but you live, the event of receiving it hasn't changed how you live, then don't expect to enter into that thing. That event of receiving the word of the Lord was an invitation. Every prophecy has its own built-in instructions. And if you don't know what those instructions are, get in the word and begin to ask the Lord, God, what do I need to do so I can enter into the good of this thing? There's a process And so he says, so I prophesied as I was commanded and there was a rattling and there was a noise and they came together. Verse nine, then he said to me, prophesy to the breath. It's the next stage in the process. He wasn't content just to have bodies moving, you know, laying there. Prophesy to the breath. There was, now there were these bodies waiting for life, but now he's saying prophesy to something external to what is already been accomplished, that it would come into what's already been accomplished and it would give it life. So prophesy to the breath. Prophesy, son of man, and say to it, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Come, breathe from the four winds and breathe into these slain that they may live. He's Ezekiel verse 10, so I prophesied as he commanded me and breath entered them. They came to life and they stood up on their feet, a vast army. Done. That's what God is after. So then God gives them the interpretation. Verse 11, son of man, these bones are the people of Israel. The the people say our bones are dried and our hope is gone and we are cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says. My people, I'm going to open up your graves and bring you back from them. I will bring you back from the land of Israel. Then you, my people, will know that I am the Lord when I open up your graves and bring you up from them and will put my spirit in you and you will live. I will settle on you and in your land and you will know that the Lord has spoken and I have declared it, says the Lord. So, In the coming days, we're going to look at a theology of prayer. We are, as a New Testament people, a prophetic people. We are a people of the future. We are 
We are reaching into the future and pulling it into the present age. We are reaching the kingdom of God that is coming. We're pulling it into the now. And God desires to do that through you and I. The king's dominion comes through human beings, through individuals. God wants to rule and reign through you, and it is a process. It's not an event. And God wants to change the dead, dry, baked, uh, decayed, disconnected areas of your life. He wants to do the same for our country. He's looking for someone to participate with him, to co-labor with him. Think about that word in the New Testament, co-labor. It's where we get the word collaborate or collaborate. It's collaboration. God wants your thumbprints all over it. God wants to collaborate with you. He wants you involved. And the fact is, it's not going to get done without somebody engaging with heaven. God will do what God's going to do. The question is, how long will it take to find someone through whom he can do it? Because he will not do it without man. And so we're going to begin to look at this. I, I, want, I want us to ask the Lord this morning. We're already three and a half minutes over, so you would stand. I want us to pray right now. And I want to ask the Lord to engage our heart, to inflame our hearts. There have been times where the grace of God has come upon me for intercession for months and months at a time. There was a time back in, it was about 2003, 2004. The grace of God came on me for nine months of prayer and fasting. And it was, it was something supernatural. I didn't ask for it. It came upon me. I was at a pastor's conference and at IHOP and God touched me and I came home and there was something different about my life that I couldn't shake. And after nine months of that, the Lord spoke to me and said, you're done. Now watch me move. And God began to move in power in our church. And I wasn't the only one that entered into that season. I can look back and see there was a number of us that that thing came upon. And I'm asking the Lord, God, do it again. Lord, use us, engage us. Lord, I don't want to go through life. I don't want to answer to you for purposes that you longed to press into planet earth, but you couldn't find a man or a woman in my generation. God wants to use us. And so I want to ask the Lord, and, I, and Rick, would you come on up here? Six feet away from me, would you come up here? No, I want you to stand up here, really. I want you to hold my hand. Rick's father, we, were, we had a prayer last night. Rick's dad, come over here. <laughs> it, uh, we'll wash our hands. Rick's dad passed away just a few months ago. He was a man of prayer. Rick, I didn't tell you, but Kathy and I, were, we've been cleaning the house. Mm. And uh, we came across a bunch of old memories and stuff. I went through the box of, of cards and, and notes that we took when our little boy died. And, and back in, I was at 95. He was a little four-year-old boy. And we were, I was reading through those cards and we came across a word your dad had given us just a couple days before he passed. And uh, man, it just, it ministered to me. This was, a, he was a man of, there was a time in my life where I was, I was going through the hardest time of my life. And he called me. He didn't say hi. He just said, I was, in, I was driving around in the middle of nowhere out in the country just wailing, just crying out to God. I was in such pain. And he just he, my phone rang. I picked it up and he said, David, where are you? It was Richard Arrowwood. The man heard from God. 
As we were praying last night, Roger McKim shared how one time he was at Richard's house and they uh, had a teen challenge group over there and Richard was talking to Roger and he said, Roger, God has me praying a lot. He said, right now he has me in a season. I'm praying eight hours a day. That's the kind of man he was. And man, as I thought about the earth, human history, a man passed through, but now he's gone. He's in heaven, he's praying, but his mantle, his assignment has changed. And, and make no mistake about it, the greatest prayer meeting in all of human history is, had, is taking place around the throne. Scripture's clear. They're the ones crying out, how long, how long, how long? But we have a role to play. And I couldn't help but think, somebody needs to get hungry for the mantle that, that fell from Richard Erwood as he was taken. Except a kernel of grain fall into the ground and die at abides alone. What a man breaks into in his life rests upon him, but in his death is released to many. That's what that verse means. And there is a mantle that's, that has been released because of Richard Arrowwood, and it's an unclaimed mantle, a mantle for intercession. I want God to grip me, and I, I just know, I know myself, I can't work up intercession like that. I know what it's like when God grips me, and I know what it's like when he, when he leaves it to me. And so I want us to pray right now that God would just grip us with intercession. If you'd put your hands out before the Lord. And I'm going to tell you, we are entering a season in the United States of America's history where God needs intercessors. There is a battle in the heavenlies for the future of this nation and the future of the globe. And the United States of America plays a key role in God's purposes in the nations. And there is a battle raging over this nation and God needs people to enter in. We wrestle not with flesh and blood. It's not the people that are our enemies. It's the principalities and powers behind them, the puppet masters that are moving the puppets. And God is looking for those who will be used by him and engaged in prayer. And so, Father, I'm asking God that you would ignite our hearts, Lord. God, I'm asking that you would engage us in prayer. And Father, I'm asking that the mantle that's on the Arrowwood family, and specifically that was on Richard Arrowwood, Lord, I'm asking that that burden that he learned to enter into, God would begin to fall on us, God. And Lord, that you engage us, Lord. Father, that there would be grace to enter into hours of intercession. Lord, that we would be able to move with you. That we would pray your purposes into the earth, God. Lord, that we would become so one with you that your desires become our desires. Lord, release it. Lord, we yield ourselves to you. We're asking God, grace us. Father, I know what it's like when you give me grace. And I know what it's like when I'm left my own. And God, I know I need your grace. Lord, you give grace to the humble. So Lord, we humble ourselves. Lord, we understand without you, we cannot do it. But with you, we can. So Lord, I'm asking these coming days, give us a brilliant revelation of the power, of the potential in intercession. 
And God, enlist us. Enlist our hearts. Win us again. Put your hooks in us, God. Win us with love. Overtake us. Ravish our hearts. So, Lord, we become one with your desires. In Jesus' name. Thanks for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to help more people hear this message, you can get the word out by subscribing and sharing it on social media. If you'd like to support the ministries of Heartland Church, you can do so at heartlandchurchonline.com give.